Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name's James Rudd. I'm the digital media editor and an associate editor at Heart. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to one of my colleagues in Cambridge, Dr. Greg Meller. And Greg, along with Professor Elijah Baer from London, has written an article which is all about cardiac channelopathies, diagnosis and contemporary management. And we discussed long QT syndrome, Brugada syndrome, and several other different syndromes. We talk about diagnosis, management, uh, pitfalls, tips and tricks, and I really hope you enjoyed the show. Perhaps we can start off, Greg, by having you introduce yourself for the heart audience. Sure. So uh, my name is Greg Meller. I'm a consultant cardiologist at Royal Papworth Hospital in Cambridge. I'm uh, specifically a cardiac electrophysiology. I work across uh, all realms of uh, heart rhythm management, but I'm particularly interested in the inherited arrhythmia syndromes or, or genetic arrhythmia syndromes. And Greg, along with Professor Elijah Baer from London, you've recently written a very comprehensive education in heart piece, which is called Cardiac Channelopathies, Diagnosis and Contemporary Management, which I found really interesting to read, certainly lo- learned lots from it. Um, perhaps we can start off by having you describe what you mean by inherited arrhythmia syndromes, Greg? What are these syndromes? How are they characterized? So the inherited arrhythmia syndromes are a group of conditions uh, with shared uh, pathophysiology and clinical uh, management uh, challenges, if you like. So we talk about inherited arrhythmia syndromes as those conditions which can cause an increased risk of sudden cardiac death due to ventricular arrhythmias, where the primary underlying abnormality is an electrical one, so either in generation or propagation of the action potential without any structural heart disease. And often these electrical abnormalities have a genetic etiology underlying them. Okay, and you choose to focus on three abnormalities, three different conditions in this review. Uh, You focus on long QT syndrome, Brugada syndrome, and catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, which I think I'm going to call CPVT uh, before I twist my words too much. Uh, Was there any reason for focusing on these three? Are these the commonest or is there some kind of genetic abnormality that they all share? So the main reason was these are the uh, the most common and the most clinically relevant of the uh, arrhythmia syndromes. They're also um, certainly the most well described and best understood Other inherited arrhythmia syndromes include short QT syndrome, early repolarization syndrome, and a variety of conditions that are kind of collectively known as idiopathic ventricular fibrillation or unexplained cardiac arrest. Those things are all generally uh, less common, and our understanding of exactly how to define those conditions and what the underlying pathology is is less well defined. Whereas in long QT, Brugada, and CPVT, we have in general a good understanding of how to define these conditions, what causes them, and then how to treat them. Perfect. And these are important, aren't they? Because although some of them are rare, they do affect young and often otherwise completely healthy people. Indeed, yeah. So they are they are rare, but perhaps not, not as rare as, as people would first think. And they do pose a risk of sudden cardiac death in, in young people without any other uh, you know, obvious illness. So we know that sudden cardiac death uh, in the general population is common, but very much rarer in young adults. But when you do have a sudden cardiac death or a cardiac arrest in a young person, particularly where there is no structural heart disease, these are the leading causes. Perfect. And I think in your in your piece, you make the point that 
they do share some commonalities in that they are largely based on the ECG for diagnosis. They have rare symptoms. They're quite hard to risk assess in many cases. And often the, the treatment relies on expert consensus level evidence rather than RCTs. But let's move into the first uh, category of things that you discuss in your paper, which is diagnosis. Uh, we'll take each one of these in turn. Let's talk about long QT syndrome. I mean, how common is it, Greg? Uh, what are the features and how do you go about making a diagnosis of long QT syndrome? So we think long QT syndrome affects around one in 2000 people. Uh, it affects men and women equally. Um, and uh, and it's seen in, in all ethnic groups. Um, the common features or the hallmark features of long QT syndrome are prolongation of the QT interval on the ECG and then clinically episodes of syncope or sudden cardiac arrest due to ventricular arrhythmias and specifically due to, due to torsades of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. The kind of main way to diagnose it is, as I said, by measuring the QT interval. Um, so this is from the onset of the QRS complex, the start of cardiac depolarization to the end of the T wave. And one of the main challenges first is, is actually measuring that interval on the ECG. Yeah, you have a very nice diagram in your paper um, and you also talk about the issues uh, that certainly I've come across in practice where the automated corrected QT measure present on many ECGs these days uh, can actually be quite misleading. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So as you can see in the diagram, what we recommend when you're manually measuring the QT interval is to draw a tangent through the steepest downward slope of the, the end of the T wave. And where that intersects your isoelectric line, you call that the end of the the end of the T wave. The problem that the automated software has is defining where that end of the T wave is. Um, often the gradient uh, changes towards the end of the T wave, particularly if you're talking about or looking at um, T waves that have an abnormal morphology. They're either inverted, uh, bifid, or uh, or biphasic, which can be a feature of some of the long QT syndrome types. So the automated uh, measurements will either overestimate or underestimate the, the QT and therefore it's important to, to manually check that. And in terms of making a final diagnosis, you sometimes need other tests, don't you? For example, exercise tests, epinephrine testing. Why do you, why do you need those, Greg? So one of the main challenges in long QT is that there's a big overlap between the absolute QT measurements in the general healthy population and in those with genetically confirmed long QT syndrome. So sometimes it can be very easy. You have a patient who's post-cardiac arrest or post-syncope with a QT of 550 milliseconds. That's quite uh, easy to make that diagnosis. But if you've got somebody with a, a less profound QT prolongation, particularly if they're asymptomatic, differentiating that from kind of the upper limit of the normal population can be challenging. And so we use other tests to kind of stress the, the repolarization system to see if we can see further QT prolongation. And the, uh, my personal favorite way of doing that is with a, an exercise test. So we know that as your heart rate goes up, your QT should shorten. Um, so your repolarization accelerates to allow accelerated depolarization. But if you've got long QT syndrome, you, you can't do that. There's less reserve in that system. So although your QT may be normal at rest, as your heart rate picks up, you can't shorten it. And in fact, what you see is paradoxical QT prolongation at higher heart rates. Perfect. Well, let's move on to Brigado syndrome, Greg. Um, how common is that condition? And again, can you tell us a bit about pathophysiology and, and diagnosis? So Brigado syndrome, we have less uh, detailed uh, 
data on the prevalence of, of Brugada syndrome, and it does vary uh, in different parts of the world. In Southeast Asian populations, it seems to be most common where it may affect up to one in 1,000 individuals, maybe one in 2,000 in European populations. It depends on how you define it and how, how, how you actually um, make the diagnosis, and we'll come on to that in, in a second. But the hallmark feature of Brugada syndrome is, again, looking at the ECG and what we refer to as the type one Brugada ECG pattern. So again, this is shown in, uh, in figure two of the paper. Uh, and what we're talking about with a, a Brugada ECG pattern is a combination of conduction delay that normally shows as a partial right bundle branch block appearance, and then elevation of the J point. This is the junction between the end of the QRS and the start of your ST segment. That is normally elevated by 0.2 or more millivolts, followed by a coved triangular-like ST elevation and inverted T wave. And that's the type 1 Brugada ECG pattern, which is diagnostic of the condition. And you mentioned some, some tips uh, for perhaps improving the pickup rate by using right ventricular leads and high leads. Um, can you expand a bit on that, Greg? Sure. So the underlying pathophysiology of Brugada syndrome uh, is localised to the right ventricular outflow tract of the heart. And that's what you're typically looking at with your leads V1 and V2 on the standard ECG. However, it's been shown with mapping studies that the RVOT may sit higher up in the chest than the fourth intercostal space. So by it moving V1 and V2 up into the third or second intercostal space, you're more likely to cover that RVOT. And therefore, you may see a Brugada ECG pattern in those leads that you would miss in the standard lead position. So we recommend that as an augmented ECG for all of our patients where the diagnosis is suspected. Okay. And what about provocative testing, agmaline testing, etc.? When should that be used and, and how does it work? So provocative testing in Brugada syndrome is a, a really controversial area. And it seems actually becoming more controversial as we go forward rather than uh, the more straightforward. So the idea, again, similarly to uh, stressing the repolarization system with exercise in long QT, in Brugada syndrome, there's a, a deficit in your, your conduction reserve. And by giving sodium channel blockers, so in the UK, most commonly ashmaline, in other parts of the world, that might be flecainide or procainamide, you uh, stress or, or you use up that reserve. And the idea is that at under that drug, you'll get a diagnostic ECG pattern, which is not present on a normal resting ECG. The problem with those tests is they're probably far too sensitive. So uh, various studies have shown up to three or 4% of the general population will have a positive Ashmanine test. So, you know, a hundredfold more than the, the incidence of, of the disease. And those patients who are diagnosed purely through an abnormal drug test have a very favorable prognosis compared to those where you pick up the ECG uh, incidentally. So you run the risk of labeling people with, with this condition who, who never need any intervention or who are never going to go and have a, an event. And what about the scoring systems that are out there? Are they useful? Do you, do you use them in day-to-day -day practice? So I think they are useful. So both long QT syndrome and Brugada syndrome have scoring, uh, diagnostic scoring systems associated with them. So um, focusing on, on Brugada for, for the time being, this is referred to as the Shanghai criteria based upon where the, the kind of meeting was that, that came up with the score. And it's a weighted scoring system that looks at your ECG. So when you have the type one pattern, whether it's spontaneous or, or drug-induced or induced by fever, which is another recognised feature, but also whether you've had symptoms suggestive of endocrine arrhythmia, such as syncope or seizures or cardiac arrest, and whether other family members 
had Brugada syndrome as well. And you look at those things, you essentially sum up the points. And if you go past a, a particular threshold, then you're diagnosed with Brugada syndrome. They are useful at avoiding these uh, overdiagnoses, but they're not validated in the sense that the weightings of different scores were arbitrarily uh, given at during the conference. And we will need long-term follow-up to see whether they're, how accurate or not they are. In long QT syndrome, it's very similar. Uh, the, the scoring system has been around a lot longer. It's much more work, well established. And again, it takes into features your QT measurement, your, your T wave morphology, uh, and also symptoms of family background. Perfect. And let's go on finally to talk about the diagnosis of CPVT. Uh, what's that? Uh, how common is it? And again, how is it diagnosed, Greg? The CPVT is a much less common condition, probably affects about one in 10,000, typically presents in childhood or, or young adulthood. So uh, a disease that the, our paediatric colleagues are much more familiar with than maybe uh, us in adult cardiology. And the, uh, the hallmark features of CPVT are syncope or sudden cardiac death due to ventricular arrhythmias in the context of adrenaline. So typically on exercise or with emotional stress. So the diagnosis, therefore, requires recreating those situations. Patients with CBVT have normal resting ECGs and, and a normal echocardiogram. But when you put them on a treadmill or you infuse adrenaline, then you see increasing frequency of ventricular ectopy and the hallmark feature being a, a particular type of VT called bidirectional VT. Okay, that sounds complicated. I won't ask you to go into it now, but uh, uh, certainly you talk about it in the paper uh, in some depth. Can we talk about genetic testing? I know this is uh, a subject which is hard for people to to get their heads around because new genes are being discovered all the time that have some associations with some of these diseases. Uh, and I think some of us find it hard to decide when testing should be used, when it shouldn't be used. Um, have you got any general comments, first of all, on genetic testing? Um, is it useful uh, in everybody or do you reserve it for some cases? How do you how do you tend to do this, Greg? So, again, a very rapidly developing field. And particularly in the UK, I think some uh, some features to mention that genetic testing within the NHS is changing, has changed over the last few years um, and will continue to do so. Genetic testing is now moving into the mainstream part of our diagnostic workup. It's no longer going to be the reserve of uh, clinical genetics departments and us as cardiologists are going to be making that decision about when to do testing more often. To facilitate this within the UK, the, the NHS has a national test directory for rare diseases. So this is a widely available document and for each condition it sets out the very specific criteria for when genetic testing should be done. Um, and then along with that there is then a recommended panel of genes of which genes to be tested. In terms of the inherited arrhythmia syndromes, we would recommend genetic testing when you have established the diagnosis and the benefits of the genetic testing either, either to inform your prognosis or to allow family screening rather than to make the diagnosis in those kind of grey case areas where it's, it's less useful. And let's talk about it then in, in long QT syndrome and genetic testing. Um, how often is it positive, Greg? And uh, maybe you can give us a bit more uh, detail on that. Sure. So long QT syndrome is probably the, the inherited arrhythmia syndrome where we understand the genetics uh, most comprehensively. And uh, when you have a patient with long QT syndrome and you do genetic testing with our current technology, you'll get a positive result in about 75% of cases. 
And by a positive result, what I mean is a genetic variant in a gene that we know is associated with long QT syndrome, where you can be 90 or 95% sure that that's the causative variant. So these are referred to as pathogenic variants or likely pathogenic uh, in the 90 to 95% confidence range. Perfect. And then that can presumably be cascaded if needed within the, the patient's family. Indeed, yeah. So once you know the causative variant in, in your affected individual, then you can look for the same variant in, in other family members. Long QT uh, exhibits an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern. So it's heterozygous, only one, you need one defective copy, if you like, to have the, the condition. And therefore, if you have one defective copy, you've got a 50% chance of passing that on to your, your first three relative. Perfect. What about Brugada syndrome? Uh, again, you mentioned that it's generally autosomal dominantly inherited, uh, but what about uh, genetic testing uh, in that condition? So the traditional teaching or traditional thought was that Brugada syndrome is an autosomal dominant uh, condition. Um, however, the yield of genetic testing is much lower in Brugada syndrome than in non-QT syndrome. So when we do this panel testing for uh, you know, single genes associated with the condition, we only find a causative variant in around 20%, so one in five of our Brugada syndrome patients. And then when you look at those families where you've identified a causative variant, it doesn't always track with the disease in other family members. So you maybe get people with the ECG phenotype who don't have the gene, people with the gene who don't have the ECG phenotype. So it's a much more complex inheritance pattern. And we're learning more and more that what is happening is you have a major genetic contribution, maybe by one variant, but then lots of other variants, lots of other genes also interacting uh, and kind of adding up, if you like, to, to get the required phenotype. And how about testing in CPVT? Is that a useful thing to do? It is. So again, CPVT follows an autosomal dominant uh, inheritance pattern. It's about 60% of patients where we, we get a causative variant. Um, and similarly to the other conditions, the main benefit of that uh, in current practice is that you can then cascade for other family members and moving looking towards the future there are early signs of, of gene specific therapies in all these conditions including the cpvt and when those things are more available then obviously the, the genotyping will be uh, more useful to the patient themselves as well so let's assume now that we have a diagnosis made in each of these three conditions and we now want to risk stratify the patient in front of us uh, what kind of tools are available to us, Greg? Let's start off with long QT syndrome. How do you go about risk stratifying somebody with that condition? So the first thing to say about long QT syndrome is actually the uh, the prognosis for most patients with long QT syndrome is pretty good. The risk of a life-threatening event overall uh, is, is kind of 1% to 5% over a five-year period for most patients with long QT syndrome. The things that we know that can help inform us are the genotype, so three common types of long QT called 1, 2, and 3, um, and the risk goes up if you go from 1 to 2 to 3, and they're related to uh, different genes. So your genotype, your absolute QT prolongation, the longer your QT is on, on the ECG, in general, the higher the risk is. And we use 500 milliseconds as a kind of cutoff when you start to get concerned uh, about risk beyond that level. And, and then, as with many things in medicine, previous symptoms are very important. So those patients who present due to syncope or, or resuscitated cardiac arrest have a much higher chance of having another event compared to those who are identified uh, either incidentally or through family screening. And how about Brugada? How do you risk stratify in that condition? 
Uh, not very well, I think, is probably the answer to that question. <laughs> Risk stratification in Brugada syndrome is, is our, our major challenge, um, particularly exacerbated by the fact that we don't have good drug therapies, as we'll discuss shortly. So the decision about putting an ICD in is, is obviously often a big one. Um, again, patients who presented with symptoms, so syncope or cardiac arrest, are much more likely to have a, a further event. Um, regardless of what their ECG looks like. Looking at the asymptomatic patients, the presence of a type 1 Brugada ECG pattern without the need for provocation um, increases the risk. So an asymptomatic patient with a type 1 Brugada ECG pattern spontaneously will have about a 1% annual risk uh, of really? events. Oh, Whereas those with a drug-induced pattern, we're talking maybe about 1 in 500 uh, annual risk. So it's a much, much smaller um, there have been multiple attempts to identify other ECG features, so things like an early repolarization pattern, um, the presence of Brugada patterns in, in the peripheral limb leads as well as the, the chest leads. Generally, these haven't been validated in multiple cohorts. Uh, and similarly, there have been attempts to uh, incorporate these various features into scoring systems, one very recently published from, uh, from a group in London, uh, which looks promising, but again, there's no external validation for any of these scoring systems at present. And what about CPVT, just to wrap up the risk stratification part? So again, similarly, the, the, the main feature is the presence of, uh, of symptoms. Um, we know in general the prognosis of CPVT is, is much worse than the other conditions. It's a much more malignant uh, condition. And um, so the the other feature would be the presence of arrhythmias on, on exercise. And when you, you're titrating people's treatment, then you will use repeat exercise testing to try and suppress any activity during exercise. Got you. Okay, perfect. And the final part of the uh, discussion, Greg, should we talk about therapies for these three conditions? Um, I'm assuming that what you're trying to do is uh, assess the risk of sudden cardiac death uh, and then provide treatment to reduce that even further if possible and also avoiding triggers, of course. But... Let's start off with long QT syndrome. Um, what should patients or how should they be advised in terms of what they should do to look after their own health, but also what the cardiologist should be doing? How do you treat these patients? So uh, you mentioned triggers and uh, one of the most important things in long QT syndrome is to educate and inform our patients about the potential triggers. And the most important one probably is medications. So we, we all are aware that there are certain medications that can prolong your QT interval. And if you've already got a genetic predisposition, those things are going to potentially uh, be, be more arrhythmogenic. So we advise our patients to avoid, if they possibly can, all QT prolonging medications. Uh, I refer our patients to a website, crediblemeds.org, which is a very reputable uh, website that's, that's kept continually up to date with the, this information. It's also got an associated smartphone app. So we tell patients to download that app. And if they're ever prescribed anything, check with the pharmacist or, or their doctor that uh, whether the medication's on the list. The other thing to mention is that, yes, we are trying to prevent sudden cardiac death. Obviously, that's our main aim in the treatment. But we're trying to do that while minimizing the morbidity to the patients. So we do say to patients that if there is a drug that's on that list, but it's very important for another condition, then, of course, we can discuss that. And it's a risk benefit uh, you know, kind of uh, estimation. The other common uh, lifestyle thing in long QT syndrome that often comes up is the role of exercise. So we know that exercise can be a trigger for arrhythmias in certain types of long QT syndrome, particularly long QT type one, which is the most common type. 
Um, and historically, therefore, patients with long QT have been told that they should avoid almost all physical activity. Mounting data has shown that that, that kind of draconian approach is, is not necessary. Um, and so we now try and have a very much more personalized discussion with patients about exercise, depending on their genotype, their overall risk, whether they're established on medical therapy, what types of exercise they, that they do. But the, the thing that we talk to all patients about is safe sports. So if you are going to exercise, try and think about having a, a system in place so that should, should you become unwell, should you lose consciousness, that there is some, uh, some way of getting help. Perfect. So things like going off running on your own in the, in the wild, as it were. Uh, exactly. So ha- having a buddy or at least someone who knows what your route is, where you're going to be back. Um, swimming is a, is a particularly high risk event. So either avoiding swimming or only swimming with a lifeguard, swimming in a pool rather than the open waters. It's normally fairly simple things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of medical therapy for long QT, you mentioned beta blockers. Can you talk a little bit about that and which ones you often choose? Sure. So beta blockers are very effective in reducing the uh, the risk of uh, of arrhythmias in long QT syndrome, and really w- w- are indicated in almost all all patients apart from those with the the lowest risk. It seems that the non-selective beta blockers, nadolol and propranolol, are more protective than the cardioselective beta blockers. Um, so they've been compared to atenolol and carbedolol historically, although never in a head-to-head trial, of course. So we, we recommend nadolol, uh, sometimes difficult to get hold of, in which case sustained release propranolol is a, a good alternative. In patients who can't, who really can't tolerate those medications and where we think the risk is maybe acceptable, we will use bisoprolol as an alternative. Um, and then the other additional treatment for patients who are either have continued symptoms on beta blockers or really really can't take them it is a surgical sympathectomy so you cut the left cervical sympathetic chain and effectively denervate or, or remove the uh, the sympathetic input to the heart it's interesting isn't it that the non-cardioselective beta blockers seem to work better have you got any idea why that might be i mean it seems counterintuitive uh I don't know the the precise uh, you know kind of physiological explanation mm. for it, um, and as I said, it's never been trialed head to head, so there's always an, an element of doubt. But the the kind of observational data seems seems pretty strong for Interesting. it. Yeah, perhaps there's, there's things we still don't understand clearly. Um, and how about Brugada syndrome, uh, Greg? How do you go about treating that? So in, in Brugada syndrome, as I said previously, we don't have many medical options. Um, generally, the, the the treatment, if there is going to be one, is is an ICD. Okay. Um, but before that, there are lifestyle uh, things to, to discuss with patients. So again, there are drugs that are known to exacerbate Brugada syndrome. So the sodium channel blockers that we would use diagnostically, of course, you'd want to avoid and drugs like related to those again there's a very good reference website brugadadrugs.org and so we direct all our patients to that um, other lifestyle things with with Brugada syndrome fever seems to be particularly important so um, fever causing the abnormal Brugada ECG pattern but also being a, a trigger for for arrhythmic events and that seems to be most relevant to younger patients, so kind of teens and early 20s, and particularly those where we have identified a sodium channel mutation on genetic testing. So we tell our patients to aggressively treat any fever, and if their fever persists, then to present to to their local hospital to to have their ECG checked. Although I have to say, from a a 
kind of real world point of view, patients walk, walk into A and E saying, "I've got Brugada syndrome. I've got a high temperature." Often met with a kind of quizzical look from their, <laughs> their local ED team. Um, but uh, you know, we're always happy to receive phone calls from from colleagues about these sorts of things. And then something else, again, a lifestyle issue, I suppose. You, you mentioned about having large meals at nighttime and, and alcohol uh, is potentially uh, hazardous or yeah, increases so, the risk anyway in Brugada syndrome. Yeah, so the most most events or the most common time of day for events in Brugada syndrome is during the night. Uh, and it's thought that the vagal innovation to the heart is particularly important. So the, the idea of avoiding large meals at night comes from the fact that as your stomach stretches, you, you trigger vagal activity and that, that can increase uh, the risk. And it has been shown, actually, if you, if you feed patients large meals, their ECG does change. Gosh, okay. On a practical point of view, it's difficult to define what is a large meal and what is late at night for people. So, it, you know, we, we kind of mention it, but I, I don't have any strict instructions. Mm. Alcohol, again, particularly binges of alcohol seem to be the trigger um, for for events. And certainly I've seen that in, in anecdotally. Um, again, we've got no trial. So we do advise patients to avoid binges of alcohol, but it's not a case of having to be teetotal. Mm. Yeah, just to try and be sensible. Um, yeah, which is probably a good doctory type thing to say anyway. Absolutely, of course it is. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and finally, just to wrap up, what about CPVT in terms of uh, in terms of treatments? So CPVT, because the uh, the triggers are, are adrenaline related, then the advice regarding sports is much more strict in CPVT. So we really, often with a heavy heart, but we really do recommend avoiding all competitive exercise um, and as much as possible even times of emotional stress as well now of course you can't protect people from uh, from all of these kind of things um, and in fact there's been some very interesting uh, reports of young cpvt patients who were advised not to exercise so started playing video games but the the stress of competitive video gaming actually brought on a cardiac arrest so oh, no. Gosh, uh, okay. so you can't protect people entirely through that sort of thing again beta blockers uh do reduce the risk um, uh, of uh, of cardiac arrest in, uh, in CPVT are very effective. Again, we tend to prefer the non-selective beta blockers uh, in, uh, in this condition as well. For those who, uh, again, continue to have symptoms, which is not an insignificant minority in CPVT, then flecainide has shown to be uh, very promising as well, probably by directly interacting with the ryanodine uh, receptor, which is the the most commonly affected protein CPVT. So a combination of beta blockers or even flecainide on its own in certain selected patients can be used. And then there's the option of sympathectomy uh, as well. So again, similarly to that used in the non-QT syndrome. Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you so much, Greg. Have you got any any closing remarks, Any anything you'd like to leave the heart audience with? I mean, the, the article will be made free uh, for several weeks after the podcast comes out and uh, people can certainly read more details there but anything else you'd like to leave people with what are the most exciting areas of of development in this uh, so in this area? i think this whole field is is a is actually rapidly developing um both in terms of our understanding of the genetics and, and associated pathophysiology our tools available for diagnosis the advent of things like artificial intelligence to help interpret the ecgs um, big data approaches to genetics are really going to change how we make the diagnosis our treatments are improving. The advent of gene therapy is going to, to revolutionise this, this area as probably uh, wider areas of medicine as well. 
But other messages for the time being is to say that, yes, these conditions are rare, but you will come across them. They're not, as, uh, they're not so rare that you'll never see them. And in general, they're, they're low risk uh, conditions. So patients shouldn't be uh, frightened when these diagnoses are, are, are made. And the, the psychological burden is, is often actually much bigger than the, the, the medical burden. So to, uh, to go easy when, when kind of breaking the diagnosis to patients, I think would be, be my key message. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much indeed, Greg. It's been great to talk to you and uh, I hope everybody enjoys this discussion. Thanks, James.